0: Okay, let us begin in
1: prayer. Please stand. Blessed is our God at all times, but now and ever and under the ages of ages. Amen. And our calendar, and yours as well, this coming Saturday, November 21st, is for us a holy day. It is the feast of the entrance of the Mother of God into the temple. The legend has it that the Virgin Mary was brought by her parents, Joachim and Anne, having been vowed by God to serve in the temple, so she was placed there as a young child where she spent her days in preparation to become the mother of uh, the Son of God. And so the tradition has it that she was presented to be received by Zachary, her uncle, the priest, and she walked by him and entered into the Holy of Holies, which no one but the high priest could enter on one day a year, the day of Yom Kippur, day of atonement. But the mother of God entered into that holy place and therefore now was the beginning of the fulfillment of God's plan for redemption. The temple of Jerusalem has as its final purpose to show forth the pure temple of the body of the mother of God that became the temple containing the uncontainable God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. And so we have a preparatory hymn that we sing these few days before the feast day. The most pure temple of our holy Savior and the most precious and bright bridal chamber, the virgin sacred treasury of the glory of God. Openly appears today in the temple of the Lord, Bringing with her the grace of the Most Holy Spirit. Therefore the angels of God are singing, This is the heavenly tabernacle. Most Holy Theotokos, save us!
0: Thank you, Father Joseph. It's good to have Father Joseph and Father Charles also back with us from their vacation in California. For those that are new to the Institute of Catholic Culture, um, they are both Melkite Greek Catholic priests. Uh, I am also a Melkite Greek Catholic, and um, and uh, they are the priests from my parish, and they come regularly to the Institute of Catholic Culture programs. Uh, they are also the generous uh, donors of the food you're eating tonight, um, and so they, they uh, offered the hummus and the bread and the grapes and so forth, so we're very indebted to them for that very generous gift. Brendan? Mark? Mark Wunsch, welcome back. They haven't decided who's going first yet.
2: I like to play the card over there. I just have a minor dispute with my with my uh, uh, colleague here about who's going to go first. You know, uh, and, and and I did that. It was all for show, actually. Uh, and, and and the only reason is is to make it. You know, if, if things don't go off so well, you know, you know, then I can say, well, it's because you made me go first. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So so I'm covering my bases. So no doubt, I'm covering my bases. Hedging my bets, Uh, anyhow It's good to see everyone back, I I think we've had a good time here Uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed yourselves as well Uh, Now, uh, before I get started, however, I I should tell a joke Because I haven't haven't done that yet Uh, Maybe, uh, you know, accidentally I I stumbled into a joke or two Uh, But but I'll tell one that I've actually told before Because it's one of the only ones I remember Uh, And and so so let's do that again, okay And and I'll find a way to kind of weave it into what we're talking about And, And so it goes something like this There is an academic dean at a modern university. And he's meeting with the various department heads of of different departments. And especially given present economic conditions, he's encouraging all department heads to slash their budgets. Uh, And and the the department head he's particularly frustrated with is, is, is the chairman of the physics department. They need these particle accelerators. They need all these expensive things. And we're, r- we're running low on funds. And so he's berating this poor you know, uh, chairman of the physics department uh, in the following way. He says, you know, why can't you just be more like the math department? You know, all they need are papers and pencils and waste paper baskets. And then he's like, no, 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 no. Even better. You know, why can 't you be like the philosophy department? They just need paper and pencils yeah you 've heard the phrase we 're not one to waste a bad idea on philosophy we 're not one to waste any idea you know, be it good or bad Anyhow. Uh, but but this there 's some uh, how, how can I weave this into a discussion of uh, You know the ancient biblical world and and the the preparation here for the, you know, the coming of the Lord. I I think I'll be able to do it in a very creative way. Let's see. Is that you can see, as we saw last week, in the history of Greek thought, how there is a certain telos. What I mean, a certain direction or order. Uh, There is a preparation of sorts that, in some sense, mirrors what is happening. In the Jewish world, uh, you've, you've studied, you know, salvation history with Sabatino or his brother uh, you know, through, at the institute, and you know that it, 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 in, in steps, the Lord makes Himself clear. He makes, he makes, he reveals Himself in stages, uh, and uh, you know, through history, you know, He becomes more and more clear. You know, His Gospel becomes you know, obviously is going to only fully be revealed with the coming uh, of, of the Word, the Word incarnate. And we see something going on uh, that, that, that parallels what is happening in salvation history in the history of philosophy. And remember, grace builds on nature, and our theology is built on a good philosophy. And As, as I mentioned the first, the first time I was here, you need a good philosophy in order to have a good theology. And if you want okay, the seed of revelation to be sown, you have to have a good foundation of natural reason. And so that's what we're going to try to, 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 to furnish you with a little bit through the Institute. Uh, but we see this happening in human history, in the Greek world. We traced last time from the beginning of philosophy, from its inception in 585, through to the birth of... of uh, uh, you know the the height of Greeks uh, of Greek thought in in Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, we saw a sort of progression. Okay, and I'm not going to go into all the various thinkers and their contribution here to the, the sort of evolution of, of Greek thought as it becomes more and more able to be reconciled with the truths that God will reveal through His Son. But we saw okay, uh, uh, through, through history, you know, beginning way back in 585, when we tried to find man, that is, for the first time, natural explanation for uh, what he was experiencing. We saw the rejection of mythology, okay, as an explanation for what is, and the ascendancy of philosophy, trying to pursue truth via reason. Now, this process, uh, you know, moved in fits and starts, uh, it was a slow process, and it's a process that made quite a few errors along the way. but at the same time, there there is a a, a body of knowledge and wisdom that begins to grow and, and and to flourish in the ancient Greek world. So we saw it with Thales, okay Now he was the guy, if you remember from last time, uh, you know that, that that fell into a hole you know when he was busy thinking. And the young girl made fun of him, and, and, and then he you know, got her back uh, by predicting, uh, using his philosophical knowledge, when there was going to be a bountiful harvest, and he bought up all the machinery in the area, and then, you know, and then sold it all when everyone else was trying to buy it uh, at a much higher price. And he said, so there. You know, he said philosophy was impractical. You know, if we want to put our heads to practical matters, we can do it. It's just that we're interested in higher things. You know? uh, this is the individual. Now, he advocated, this is Thales, okay, way back in 585, we have this individual, Thales, who uh, is going to try to explain our world. And in so doing, he advocates that there is some material principle. And what is a principle? Is that from which something proceeds. The human mind can see. Okay, that the multiplicity of things here, it makes sense for them to come from one place. And what these individuals advocated was that there was some material thing okay, from which everything else came. Thales uh, held that it was water. We talked about Anaximander, Examenes, these other individuals who, who favored another material principle. But they all favored one origin of all that is. Okay? And slowly, again, we're paving the way uh, for, for, for uh, you know, a vision of reality that will become more and more compatible with what we believe as Christians. Okay? Now, as we, as we progress through the history of ancient philosophy, uh, we finally see in the Pythagoreans individuals who say that reality is not just material. See, part of the problem with the material monists, or the naturalists, as we called them, Thales and some of the other individuals, is that they hold that all that is, is material. Okay, but finally, with the Pythagoreans, they advocated a kind of existence of uh, immaterial reality. They even said that there is a part of man, a soul, that is immaterial and immortal. Okay, So they're advocating something that is very important, and and, and they made a significant contribution in the history of ancient Greek thought. Now, as we're moving forward, we run into these individuals, Heraclitus and Parmenides, Uh, and they, in some ways, said the exact opposite of one another. And because of this, philosophy reached something of an impasse. Does anyone remember what they said from last time? Go ahead. Uh, for many
1: dads believe there is no such thing as change.
2: Very good. No change. OK. There, 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 and, and, and the re- argument he gave to advocate that position it went as follows. If things are, then they can't become, because they already are. And if they're not, they can't become. Because out of nothing, nothing comes. And therefore, everything is, and change is an illusion. And that was a very, it's logically coherent. You know, there might be a few problems here and there. But but it was a persuasive argument, and so uh, it, it held sway. At the same time, however, Heraclitus is making the argument that all, in some ways, is change. And that seems to also fit with our experience. In our experience... You go from writing to not writing, you go from thinking to not thinking, you go from living to dying, and we see change all over the place, and so it seems like we have to say there is something also like change in the universe, but Parmenides' argument seems to prevent that, and therefore philosophy was at an impasse, and therefore this gave rise to the sophists, okay, who who said, forget the pursuit of truth. Let's pursue power, something that, that, that is worthwhile. And, and, and they kind of threw that out, until, and that's what they advocated, until we have the individual of Socrates, who comes on the scene, shows the, the kind of fallacious nature uh, and, and, and duplicity of their lives, fallacious nature of their reasoning and duplicity of their lives, and people are moved by the heroic person of Socrates okay, uh, to seek after virtue. And, and this is something that, that was novel about Socrates, and paved the way now for what is, is going to happen in Plato. Okay? Now that is, is a very cursory review of what we've already said. Now what is Plato going to do? Okay? Well he looks at this impasse. Okay? And he says that all is being. It, it, it is. And it's not going to change. Uh, or are things always changing? And there's no stability in, in, in our experience. And he's going to say what? Plato's going to say, well, they're both true in a different sense. He's going to say, in the world in which we live, everything is changing. And yet, there is a supernatural realm called the world of the forms. Okay, and I'll explain what that means in a minute. That is more real than this world. And which is unchanging, okay? And so he divides reality between this world and a supernatural world. Now, how did he try to advocate that position? Okay, let me try to make sense of it. So, what lives above what he calls this divided line? Okay, what lives up here are things that are universal. Okay, and when we look, we t- speak of universality. What do I mean? I mean like a common noun, like cat, dog, beauty itself. We're not dealing with this beautiful thing. We're dealing with beauty. We're dealing with justice. We're dealing even with cat and dog and not Fido and Garfield. Okay. Now, we do come to knowledge, do we not, of what a cat is. But there's something peculiar. Have you ever seen cat? Have you ever seen beauty? No. You've just seen beautiful things. You've just seen individual cats. And yet, we have a notion of what a cat is. And Plato thinks, it can't be from this world, because this world, all we see are Fido's and Garfield's. Where do we have that knowledge from? And he proposed something novel. Maybe we have a soul that pre existed the body. And it saw in a heavenly realm what he calls the forms, exemplar forms of what we see in this realm. And so we actually saw beauty. Okay, we saw justice. We saw all these universals. I don't want to write them all out, but I'll oh, man. We saw uh, I can write on a few justice. We saw beauty. We saw cat. We saw all of these universals. And thus when we see an individual cat, we're able to call it a cat because we know the nature of a cat. Because our souls pre-existed our body and could see these forms in a direct way, before they descended into the body. Now, what does the body do? The body leads to forgetfulness. We forget what we once knew. But all it takes is seeing a cat to remind ourselves of what a cat is. But it's not knowledge that we get from the particular world, but it's knowledge we get from the supernatural world that we once lived in before our soul descended into the body. Now, how else could he defend this? It, it actually makes sense. If we think about beauty, why does there have to exist a perfect beauty? Let's think about it. Okay? I, I might have given this example before. But look, think about uh, if you look at two beautiful things. You look at St. Peter's Basilica. You look at McDonald's. And you say, St. Peter's is more beautiful than McDonald's. I'm, I'm, I'm going to affirm that. I don't know what you, that's what I'm inclined to think, all right? Yeah, maybe it depends on how hungry you are. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. The golden arches can look pretty sweet. You know? yeah, yeah. Anyhow, no, it's no, not necessarily. Okay. But, uh, but, but when you're looking at simply from the perspective of beauty, you can say one thing is better than another, more beautiful. How can you make that judgment? That this is more beautiful than that. How can you make that comparison? I'm asking you. Okay? Very good. There has to be a standard. That's very well put. There has to be a standard of, of beauty by which you evaluate things as participating either to a greater or lesser degree in that standard. And so you can say, that St. Peter's is more beautiful than McDonald's. And why? Because you know what beauty is. And beauty exists and is real. Not just the beauty of St. Peter's Basilica, but beauty itself. Justice itself. We call things just and beautiful because they participate in pure justice. Pure beauty. And we have that knowledge not because we've seen beauty here but because we formally existed and saw these forms. Now, this is, is amazing here because he says these forms are immutable. And, and even the truths of mathematics, you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4, is unchanging like these forms. Any unchanging truth exists in this world of forms. Now, what is significant here is that this realm is more real than this realm. Why is that? Because things are said to be beautiful insofar as they share in beauty. But what is most beautiful is beauty itself. And these other things are less beautiful and therefore less real. Okay? So they are less real. And what is most real is the supersensible world. Now, Can you see maybe how this is compatible with some things our faith is going to teach? Now, what does the Christian do? What does St. Augustine do when he tries to baptize Platonism? He wants to keep these standards as existing and as the patterns after which God made the world and made beautiful things. Well, what does he do? He puts them in the mind of God. And now, the forms, uh, the, the beauty we see, is patterned after beauty itself. And beauty itself is identified with God himself, who does exist in a supernatural realm. And it's after the pattern of God that things are made. Now, let me add the one last thing about a Platonic thought before I, I, I bring Aristotle into this. Now, what else did Plato say? How is the world created? Well, what what he said is, in the beginning, there was chaos. There was no order. There was nothing. And what is called a demiurge, uh, which is like an architect, made things out of this chaos. And he made things by referring to these exemplar forms. In other words, he made beautiful things to reflect the beauty that he sees in the world of forms. So that the things that are beautiful, the the individual cats even, that that are created, are made in the image of, of catness itself, of beauty itself. Okay? Now, it's interesting to see the parallel then with our faith. God, in viewing himself and the innumerable ways he can make things to reflect himself. Freely chooses to create things. But their pattern is in God. Okay? And, 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 and God has an idea of each one of us you know, that he decided to bring into existence. And so there is a reason for all of us and everything that exists in God in a similar way than then, 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 uh, the, the, the Plato spoke of, all of things in this world being patterned after this supernatural world of forms. Now I'll, I'll say one joke. You know, I had this Dutch uh, uh, teacher in, in Rome, and I took some classes in English before I took all my classes in Italian. And, and what he said? He said, "In the beginning, there was chaos." <laughs> and what, what are you talking about? In the beginning, there were. Cows? You know, cows. In the ze be- zeba cows. I'm like, I'm just picturing the beginning, there's a bunch of cows floating around. And the demiurge made things out of these cows. I mean, what are you talking about? No. No, no, instead we have we have this chaos. And the demiurge is like a god figure, and he makes everything after the likeness of these forms. And so what exists here has its origin and is made to resemble, although in an imperfect way, what exists in a supernatural realm. Okay. Now, what, is, what, is, what does the church do, and what does Christian philosophers do, like Augustine? He keeps everything besides a few things. The notion of being created, God doesn't create out of something. God creates what? Ex nihilo, out of nothing. And this is a, is a significant advancement. Okay? But it's similar. I mean, we have a cause of the world, making the world to reflect a supernatural reality. Okay, but we have the Christian God creating out of nothing all that is, and not just creating out of something. But it's close. Now, what about Aristotle? He says, this whole world of forms, I don't like. Okay, I don't like it. Why? Because he's saying that this world is not real. And it seems like this world is the most real. Okay? Now he does something very interesting here. Okay? He also didn't like the whole idea of the soul pre-existing the body. And then also Plato affirmed, you know, in, in, incorrectly, that after death, the soul leaves the body and he favored a kind of reincarnation kind of thing. Uh, but, but, but Aristotle didn't favor that. He said, our knowledge is not from remembering. Our knowledge is from experience. And I think that's something we all want to say. I know cats because I've seen cats. But this is the trick. How then do I come to universal knowledge of what a cat is? Well, he'll say that these two parts, being and becoming, are actually two parts of every individual thing. He'll say that all things are composed, and you might have heard of this, of form and matter, a form is what makes something to be what it is. And matter is a potentiality for change. That something could become something else. And so if we look at grass, grass has a form that makes it to be what it is. Grass. And yet it has a potentiality to be consumed by a cow and to become cow flesh. Okay? And thus there's change. And there's a potentiality in everything to become something else and yet there is something that makes it to be what it is. Now, knowledge for Aristotle was based on our experience of things and our ability to abstract what makes something to be what it is from the particular thing. And he would affirm in a very complex process that we have the ability from meeting cats to focus on their catness. Not to focus on the length of whiskers of Garfield, his weight, his color, all the things that make him individual, but we can forget all of those and focus on simply him as a cat. Just like we develop an idea of what a circle is, possibly, from seeing circular things, like your Michelin tire on your car. And you abstract from it being a rubber from being rubber, it's saying Michelin. And in the mind, we can give it an existence. Uh, we, we can focus on the simple fact that it's a circular thing in isolation. And thus, all of our knowledge is derived from our sense experience. Okay, Now, I, I, I'm having to abbreviate here. But what this does for Aristotle is he allows man's knowledge to begin in this world. And individuals like St. Thomas Aquinas are going to affirm the exact same thing, okay? is that our knowledge is not because our souls preexisted the body, but it's from our bodily experience of things. And actually, we need our bodies to come to know things by way of our senses. And so there's a greater value that Aristotle puts on our bodies. And our souls, in fact, are the forms of the body and are intimately united in such a way that even when our souls leave the body, they want their bodies back because our souls have been made to inform the body. And thus, his vision of man, his vision of his emphasis on the dignity of the material world, which is the origin of our knowledge and which has a dignity in its own right, is something that Christian thinkers will adopt, Uh, the, the intrinsic dignity of the material world the fact that it is the origin of all of our knowledge are things that St. Thomas will affirm. Okay, And the fact, again, even the resurrection of the body makes sense and is, is, is highly compatible with an Aristotelian approach to man and philosophy. So in these two thinkers, and this is the last thing I'll say because I'm out of time, I, 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 very, I wish I could say so much more about Aristotle, but, but that's, that's what we have. And and, and just to make sense of this, when you see Raphael's uh, uh, image here that we saw uh, 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 here of, of Plato's Academy, we see Plato pointing up to the heavens and Aristotle pointing down at the earth. Okay, you've all seen this famous piece of art by Raphael. And in the Christian concept, these are wed. You know, the Christian philosopher Aristotle, I mean, sorry, Thomas Aquinas, takes Aristotle, he takes Plato, And he takes the best of both of these men, the best that we've seen, at least in partial form, this evening, and forms and constructs a coherent philosophy that will be the ground upon which the seed of revelation will be sown. And in so doing, the imperfect knowledge of the philosophers, the imperfect wisdom of those bereft of revelation, paved the way, For people to be open to the truths of our church. And and, and people could see the great compatibility. And so, in some ways, via natural reason, God revealed much about reality and about truth. And this all paved the way, ultimately, for the fullness of truth to come in the person of Jesus Christ. And to be well received and well prepared by the world that the gospel traveled to. There we have it. Thank you. Thank
3: you. Well, we're going to talk about the, uh, the preparation of the world for the coming of Christ. And, of course, when, when Christ came, the Pharisees said uh, he came as a glutton and a drunkard. Uh, and so we're... But it's, it's good for us as Christians to imitate Christ in his glorious temperance uh, in enjoying the things that, that he himself created, like grapes and uh, what, what comes that? from grapes. So yeah, there you go, Marcus Hammond. He's, he's <coughs> following a Christian example. Good man. Uh, good man, good man. So... Um, yeah, in fact, what we've seen here compressed into this, this whole course over the last several weeks is really a, what seems at times to be a slow and painstaking, but is nevertheless, when seen from afar, uh, really a sweeping and breathtaking preparation of the world for Christ. Right? We've talked about the way in which the Greeks prepared the Mediterranean world to receive the gospel with their advances in philosophy. Uh, we talked about the way in which uh, the Greeks kind of spread their culture and their thought and their literature and their art and their poetry and their notions of justice and their notions of man all across the eastern Mediterranean world in the period of Alexander, but there's still something missing, right? even when we've talked all about the Greeks, there's still something missing from the Mediterranean world that's going to be necessary for the gospel to be spread effectively, right? and that is political unity. Right? Political unity was something that the Greeks could not provide to the Mediterranean world. It wasn't in their arsenal. It wasn't the art in which they were most skilled. Right? However, in the ancient world, there arose another people right, for whom this was really their only unique skill and really their only unique contribution to the history of man and the history of the West. Right? Their only unique contribution was the contribution of government and statecraft. And, of course, the people that I'm referring to are the Romans. Right? Now, to talk about the contributions of the Romans to the history of the West in 29 and a half minutes <laughs> is very difficult. It's very difficult. Right? But in a certain sense, this is what Virgil does in a mere few seconds, Right. when Virgil, in, in his Aeneid, instructs the Romans. He tells the Romans, Others will be better at astronomy. Others will be better at poetry. Others will be better at drama. Right. Others will be better at philosophy. Others will be better at a variety of things. Uh, he, he says people will, will draw forth life from, from bronze and sculpture. People will, will build glorious temples. Other people will do that better. But your job, O Roman, is to rule the peoples with lawful power. These shall be thy arts. Right to spare the humble and to subdue the proud by war. Right? So what we see when we look at the contribution of the Romans to preparing the way for the coming of the gospel is that it's the Romans and only the Romans who possessed the political genius to provide the Mediterranean world with a united political organization right? and a peaceful environment in which the gospel could be spread. Right. Now, it's fascinating to look at the genesis of the Roman state because the, the thing is, if you look at the Roman state at its beginnings, there's nothing about it that gives you any inkling that this village, this tiny town on the Tiber, is going to rise to become mistress of the Mediterranean. It's not unlike any other tiny town on any other river in any other part of the Mediterranean world in its origins. Right? Now, the, the town of Rome or the village of Rome, as we'll call it, is first founded in 753 before Christ. This is the the sort of mythic date for the founding of Rome, right? And yet the first couple centuries of Roman history are shrouded in myth, legend, mystery, uh, and lies, right? We know know very, very little about the earliest period of Roman history, The very earliest phase of Roman history is from 753 to 509, right? And this is the phase in which Rome was ruled by these mysterious kings. We know very little about the kings. Even their names are, are up for question. Right? And the whole history of the period is, uh, is transmitted to us in, in later sources. Right? Survivals from this period are maybe a couple of inscriptions, uh, some pottery here and there. There's very, very little that survives from this period of Roman history. So you really can't say much historically about the regal period. Right? But things get interesting when the Romans expel the kings in 509, because this is the stage at which Rome transforms itself into a republic. Now, just to get some things straight, when we talk about Rome being a republic in 509, what are we talking about? Are we talking about anything that looks remotely democratic? No. No, we're we're really not. What are we talking about? We're talking about a a very um, narrow, very tight club of a few elite families who control everything. That's the Roman Republic in 509. So when we talk about the Roman Republic in its origins, we're talking about a very exclusive aristocracy that controls all the political offices of the state, that controls the Senate, that controls all the priesthoods and religious offices, that runs everything in Rome. The vast majority of people, not only are they disenfranchised, not only are they denied access to real political power of any kind, but they have very little recourse against arbitrary action by these elites, right? Because in addition to being the sole uh, people who have access to the Senate, who have access to the magistracies, who have access to, um, to the priesthoods, the, the elites are also the ones who interpret the law because guess what? The law is not even written. And that's where we begin in 509. Over the next five centuries, right, leading directly up to the coming of Christ, the Roman state would go through a dramatic series of transformations that we're going to try to wrap our minds around. And what we're going to see in these transformations as Christians through the eyes of faith is the hand of providence. Because we know for certain that the spread of the gospel of Christ never could have occurred the way it did in any other context other than in that provided by Rome. And so let's take a look at how the Roman state develops over the next few centuries. You really can, uh, you can break it down into three main periods. This this helps makes it intelligible for us a little bit. Uh, The first period, what we'll call the Early Republic. Early Republic will take us from say 509 down to 287. The Middle Republic, this will take us from 287 maybe to 146 or so. Uh, And then what we'll call the Late Republic, this is the period that lasts from 146 B.C. down to the ultimate um, moment when the Republic really ceases to exist, and that's in the year 27 B.C. Right? And when we talk about the Republic ceasing to exist, we're not talking about the Roman state going out of existence, are we? No, quite the contrary. We're talking about being finally transformed into an empire. Right? Now, this is, this is what's fascinating for us. right? In the early Republican period, right, What we'll see is the main accomplishment in this period, this is the period in which you have a dramatic, bitter, uh, and hard-fought political struggle between the elites of Roman society and the vast bulk of the population, who are clamoring for access to the halls of power. This political struggle sort of uh, comes to a conclusion in 287. The other main accomplishment of this early period is this is the period when Rome becomes supreme within this central portion of the Italian peninsula. The Middle Republic, on the other hand, this is the period of the the majority of the Great Wars in which Rome will will rise to a position of political and military dominance in the Mediterranean. This is the period in which Rome is forced to confront the Hellenistic states. Rome is forced to confront Carthage in this period. Rome confronts a variety of northern European peoples as well. But then what we see is in the late Republic, In the late Republic, we see that the burdens of these vast overseas territories that Rome acquires are such as to prevent the Republic from continuing to function the way it had previously. We'll see the Roman Republic was not the kind of state that was designed to administer vast overseas territories and was therefore obliged to change. And so for the Christian, looking at this transition from Republic to Empire, what we see is that the transition from republic to empire is not the tragedy that it's often treated as. Right? Very, very often you'll see uh, sort of a, um, I know, the, the transition from republic to empire is seen as corrupting. The transition from republic to empire is seen as, as uh, a very tragic downfall of a noble ideal or something like that. In the Enlightenment, people were big on, on treating it that way, historically. But this is really inaccurate in, in, in a profound way. Right. what we really see looking at the transition from republic to empire right, is that it was the late republic that was dysfunctional. It was the late republic that needed to adjust. And the transition to an imperial government is what provided the peace and stability that made the spread of the gospel possible and that made the maintenance of the Roman state possible, for that matter. Right? So let's talk about specifics. Let's talk about how the Roman state evolved. First of all, in the early republic. When I talk about there being two groups of people in the early republic, one of which was the elites, who at the beginning of things controlled everything. Right? What, what, um, what, what are the names for these two groups of people? You, you know them. What? Exactly, yeah. These are the, the patricians on the one hand and the plebeians on the other hand. There's no knights yet. Um, but we have the patricians and the plebeians. right? The patricians, these are the the small circle of elite families who are responsible directly for expelling the kings. The plebeians, on the other hand, are everyone else. And in these years between 509 and 287, it's fascinating because the plebeians wage a steady, gradual struggle for political rights, which by the end of the early Republican period, by 287, uh, the plebeians win. They win access to the magistracies, they win access to the priesthoods. Uh, they obtain a, a written law for themselves, which is a major concession. Uh, they actually gain the ability to make laws themselves, right? which is an extraordinary concession. That's, that's sort of how the struggle culminates in 287. And yet, this is fascinating. In this early period, we see the Roman genius for statecraft expressed in the fact that at no point did this struggle ever become violent. At no point was bloodshed during the struggle between the patricians and the plebeians. And so at the end of things, when the, when the plebeians have been victorious in, in winning access to political power, winning some kinds of political resource and that sort of things, let's once again ask ourselves, is Roman democracy now in 287? Absolutely not. No, between 509 and, two, and 287, the, the result of this long struggle, ultimately, in, in practical terms, is that Rome goes from being a very exclusive, very tightly... Controlled aristocracy to being a slightly less exclusive, slightly less tightly controlled aristocracy. <laughs> right? uh, you have a slight broadening of access to power because, in practical terms, it's only a few plebeian families who really win access to the magistracies and the priesthoods and to membership in the Senate. Right? But be that as it may, th- this is still—it's a remarkable ability to adapt politically that we notice in the Roman state. Right. Then in the Middle Republic, right, having sort of a, adapted itself in the ways that it needed to internally, right, in the Middle Republic, we see the Roman state turn and, and confront things that it has to deal with externally, right, principally its enemies in the Hellenistic world and in Carthage. Right? The first great confrontation that the Romans have is the confrontation with Pyrrhus. And this, of course, is from... Um, Oh gosh, this is from 280 when is it? 281 to 275 would be the war with Pyrrhus in Italy, right? And this is a war in which the Romans have to confront, for the first time, all the arts of Hellenistic warfare, including elephants, right? Including the phalanx, everything. And the Romans are ultimately victorious against Pyrrhus, right? Having driven this Hellenistic king Pyrrhus out of Italy, the Romans are then forced to confront Carthage, right? And, you know, it's the first two wars with Carthage that are really important. Uh, the first war with Carthage is from 264 to 241. Second war with Carthage from 218 to 201. All right. Now, in these two wars, uh, we see, once again, the, the Romans showing a remarkable ability to adapt. Uh, right? We see the Romans in the first war with Carthage, the Romans who have never been a seafaring power before, never been a naval power before, they, they've, they've, their navy is, is smaller than that of, uh, let's say, Canada. Right? Uh, anyway, uh, their navy consists of like two rowboats. Right? Uh, they don't even have broken down nuclear subs. Right? Um, so what do they do? They, they, they confront in Carthage, right, Carthage, one of the great Phoenician states of the ancient world for whom seafaring, uh, seafaring was their bread and butter. Naval warfare was one of their principal accomplishments. Right? So the Romans look at that and they say, Okay, We'll build a navy from scratch, and we'll go fight them on the sea, and we'll do it better than they do, and we'll beat them, right? It's a remarkable set of accomplishments. In the Second Punic War, right, the Romans have to confront something even more formidable right, in the, one of the greatest generals that the ancient world had ever seen, namely the Carthaginian general Hannibal, right? and in their confrontation with Hannibal, the Romans show a kind of a, a remarkable resilience as they suffer defeat after defeat, ultimately invading Africa, forcing Hannibal to be withdrawn from Italy, and defeating him before the walls of Carthage. So towards the end of this period, around 201 or so, we see Rome rise to a position of complete mistress of the Western Mediterranean, right? But the wars with Carthage had other implications, right? Because Carthage had allies, Carthage had friends in the Hellenistic world. And after defeating Carthage, Rome was forced to confront the kingdom of Macedon, the kingdom of the Seleucids, other kingdoms in Africa, rebellious Spanish tribes. So that by the time we get to 146, suddenly, suddenly the Roman Republic has an empire on its hands. Now here's where things get really, really interesting. Let's let's explain it to you this way, okay? If you're wondering why the Roman Republic has to become an empire if it's going to survive... Let's look at things this way. Uh, if you're going to join the army today in the United States, um, what do you need? You need a pulse <laughs> and a birth certificate, right? I mean, you need to be physically fit to a certain extent. But do you need to own a certain amount of property? No. Do you need to make a certain? Do you need to buy yourself your own tank or something like that? <laughs> No, right? That's, that's not how it works. Not, not, not only do you not need to provide yourself with weapons, uh, you don't need to buy yourself an F-16 if you want to join the Air Force or something like that, right? uh, Not only that, but if you join the military, they pay you, right? It's fascinating. This is how a modern state works, and this is usually how an empire works, right? If you join the military, the taxpayers pay you to be in the military. But let's ask ourselves about the Roman Republic. Right? How does the Roman Republic work? Uh, who can join the military in the Roman Republic? Any citizen? Certainly not any citizen. Someone said farmers. You're you're kind of on the right track, it, and, but it, it's more than just farmers. Landowners who own a certain minimum amount of land are able to join the military. And why is there this restriction? Why is there a property qualification? Because in the Roman Republic. Nobody pays you to be in the army. You have to finance your own participation in the army. You have to provide yourself with weapons. You have to provide yourself with provisions. You have to contribute uh, to support your participation in the army. So if you're especially wealthy, maybe you can afford a horse. And then you get to be in the cavalry. That's, you know... uh, but, you know, there's certainly, certainly you can't go down to a recruiting station, sign on the dotted line, and start getting a paycheck. That isn't how it works, right? Now, think of the implications of this, right? This, this type of system, right, in which independent freeholders finance their own participation in the army, this works really well when you're fighting local wars, right? Because all the people who are fighting are volunteers. All the people who are fighting are fighting to defend their own land. What happens, though, what happens when you're asked to go to fight um, Mithridates, the king of Pontus, and you're gone from your farm for seven years? What happens to the farm? Not, Not for taxes, necessarily, right? But what what happens to the farm is your wife is back home on the farm desperately trying to make ends meet while you're gone for seven years. And the farm goes to rack and ruin, and the creditors come calling, and ultimately the farm has to be sold after it's been mortgaged three times. Ultimately the farm is sold and the farm is lost. The freeholding peasantry who served in the Roman army simply could not maintain their property while they were away fighting foreign wars in Africa, in Spain, in Macedon in Syria, right? It simply doesn't work, right? Now think of the social problems that this creates. After after many decades and many foreign wars, what do you end up with then? Very few people who are qualified anymore to fight, right, uh, are able to join the army. But not only that, you end up with this whole swath of society who have been deprived of their lands, rendered homeless and landless. You have this whole swath now of homeless veterans. right? This creates a huge social problem. Now, the Romans tried to remedy this towards the end of the second century. right? As we get into the late Republic, we see some solutions that are proposed for this problem. Have you guys heard of the Gracchi brothers? I'm sure you studied them in, in school. The Gracchi brothers, Th- this is what they were trying to do. They were trying to remedy this problem of the landless veterans who had lost their land while being away on foreign wars. right? But the solutions that are suggested by the Gracchi brothers what, they, what the solutions amount to is taking back the land from all the creditors who bought it and redistributing it back to its original owners, right, and trying to recreate this class of freeholding peasantry. Now, the wealthy elites who bought up all the land aren't going to go for that, right? This is why the Gracchi brothers are both assassinated in public, right? And so what ultimately is going to be the solution? The ultimately, the solution that, uh, that is implemented is by no means a perfect one. Right? It's the solution devised by the, the famous Roman general Marius. Right? And this is in the late period, around the year 108, the Roman general Marius suggests this solution. How about we simply eliminate the property qualification that's associated with joining the army, not require them to own any property, allow landless, homeless individuals to... Just enter the army, right? Well, then how the heck are you going to pay them? Well, you'll pay them after you conquer some territory, right? You'll distribute the the land to them, right? And so on whom do they depend? On whom do these soldiers depend? They depend on their commander to lead them to victory and then reward them afterwards, right? Now, you see, this is a recipe for disaster, right? Because what does this open the door to? This opens the door to ambitious military commanders, men like Marius and Sulla, men like Pompey and Crassus, men like Julius Caesar, right? Using the army as a means to political power, even using the army against the state if necessary, right? Because to whom are the soldiers loyal? To their commander, right? Now, this is the situation that creates the drama of the late Republic, in which you see ambitious commander after ambitious commander attempt to establish himself in in sole control of the Republic. And ultimately, it had to come down to one man. And, And by the providential design of God, it does come down to one man. A young relative of Julius Caesar, the young man who avenges Julius Caesar's assassination, and his name, although originally Octavian, his name becomes Augustus, right? And in the 27th year before Christ, the emperor Augustus was given by the Senate full plenitude of power over the republic, right? To actually implement political reforms, to actually implement an imperial system, namely the kind of system of taxation and administration that is capable of dealing with vast overseas territories, right? The result was a period of peace and tranquility that the Mediterranean world had never known. And in this period, the birth of Christ occurred, and the foundation of the church occurred, and the initial preaching and missions of the apostles occurred, and they occurred in a world that was united, make no mistake, by Greek culture, by Greek ideas, but by Roman statecraft. And it was in this world that the church initially spread, and that the historical advent of Christ in his salvific mission was able to occur. And I think that's all we have time for, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Okay, question and answer. Again, same rules apply. We have a maximum of five questions. The questions are one sentence long. And what do they have on the end? A question mark. Look, you guys are good. Okay, yes.
1: For Brunden, if you could repeat the last maybe 60 seconds about Augustus. It was just going a little bit too fast for me to capture that.
3: I'll do my best. Uh, I kind of made it up on the spot, so. Uh, (laughs) No, I, I, I... I think what I, what I said in, in reference to Augustus was, Augustus was a younger relative of Julius Caesar. Right? Caesar was assassinated in 44, uh, right? and, and after Caesar's assassination, it was Augustus who kind of led the, uh, the vengeance against Caesar's assassins. Right? And uh, he, there ended up being kind of two men left standing of all the dynasts who had dominated the late Republic, and that of course was Augustus and uh, Mark Antony. Right? But remember, Mark Antony took refuge in Egypt. He took Refuge with Cleopatra, took refuge uh, In the decadent Last remnant of, of, of the Hellenistic World, right? whereas Augustus made himself The champion of Rome, the champion of Order and the champion of peace Right. Having, having defeated uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra in 31 At the battle of, of Actium right? And consolidated his position It was in 27 that Augustus Was given full control of the state Right? He was given a plenitude of power. He was declared imperator. He was declared Augustus. He was declared to be the ruler of the Roman world. Right? And he, he was also declared to be protector of the republic, interestingly enough. You know, the early emperors, uh, they never denied that they were ruling a republic. Right? But what we see here is, is the providential hand of God, really, uh, because Augustus establishes a peace that the Mediterranean world had never seen. And it's in this environment of peace, this unprecedented peace, that Christ is born and that the initial um, mission activity of the early church occurs.
0: At the time of the, when these philosophers were, Aristotle and and so forth, coming to this understanding of the soul, what was the Jewish understanding based on the, the Bible, what was their understanding of the soul?
3: Um, I'll take a first shot at it. I think it's really interesting to look at the books of Maccabees uh, which correspond roughly with the Hellenistic period and you see in, in the books of Maccabees a depth of understanding of the nature of the soul and the afterlife and prayer for the dead and all, all of these things that don't seem to be known or understood very clearly earlier in, in Jewish history. I, I mean, in the time of, say, King Solomon, if you look at the wisdom literature as, as representative of, of Solomon's thought, you really don't see... Uh, too clear a notion of the soul. It's, it's very amorphous, very vague. They want to believe in an afterlife, in a soul. Uh, where does the breath of man go when he dies? That sort of thing. But in, in later time, in, in the Hellenistic age, the Jews do seem to have developed a very clear sense of the soul and of the afterlife. And the question is, where did they get it? Did they get it, get, did they get it from the Hellenistic world? Did they get it from the Greeks? And it's, it's hard to say yes to that because good Jews rejected everything that came from the Greeks right, in the time of the Maccabees. Um, you know, and, and this was the, the, the big kind of crisis at the heart of, uh, of the Maccabean age. And so did they get it from the, from the Greeks, or did they develop it somehow on their own? Or did they simply take what was good from the Greeks, like gold out of Egypt? It, it's hard to say because the history of that thought, the development of that thought, is not
2: documented very well. Just to add, you know, add to to Professor McGuire's uh, discussion here. Just to even bring it, you know, fast forward a little bit. There, there are also Greek, I mean, the Jewish philosophers that are influenced by Hellenistic thought, and Philo and other uh, philosophers who are both Jewish and philosophers, you know, develop you know a notion the, of the soul that is simultaneously they think compatible with their their Jewish teaching, and yet able to be Demonstrated, and known via reason, but but that's only actually after the birth of Christ as well, in some of the Jewish communities in Egypt and other uh, uh, parts of the Hellenistic world.
1: Uh, Mark, this is for you, uh, just quickly. Uh, who is your favorite philosopher
2: and why? Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my final answer, yeah, no, 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 but, uh, yeah, no, yeah, see, see, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a very, tr- it's a tricky question, right, because uh, it depends on how you define philosophy, doesn't it, yeah, yeah, I mean, Christ, is he a philosopher? I mean, in the wide sense of Augustine, yes, philosophy is, is, is the pursuit of wisdom, and thus, there is no fine distinction between th- philosophy and theology. Uh, And since Christ is wisdom, and he reveals wisdom to us, he is the quintessential perfect philosopher. However, uh, the way we've been viewing philosophy in general is is via the Thomistic distinction between philosophy and theology. Between what can be known via reason, and what can be known via faith. And because Christ is primarily about revealing things that have henceforth not been shown, this veil has not been pulled back until Christ reveals the nature of God, the inner dynamic of God as one person and one... Uh, this is bad theology, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, one God, three persons, right? Uh, that's why I do philosophy, right? uh, Yeah, yeah, but uh, no, as one God and three persons. You know, this is something that most you know, philosophers will affirm cannot be demonstrated via reason. So, that's a background to say, at the end of the day, actually, I mean, I, 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 I have a um, uh, Saint Thomas, insofar as he studied, you know, what can be known about truth via reason, is is my favorite. But of those individuals who are strictly philosophers, okay, maybe you you, you might say Plato, Aristotle, you know, Descartes, Kant, some of these people, it would be Aristotle. Uh, it would be Aristotle. It would be Aristotle for his, uh, you know, something that he did. Uh, yeah, it's rough you know, it's rough that's a rough one but 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 ultimately his his um his profound respect for uh things of this world and comprehending it uh for his discussion uh of 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 you know living things and and and, and what makes them distinct his is is developed uh respect for uh truth as it's discovered here and now i think uh there's there's just a, he just had a lively Lively appreciation for it. And you know who picked that up and who gave it to Thomas is Albert the Great. And Albert the Great is brilliant, a doctor of the church, natural scientist, and and there's these great stories of of good doctor of the church, Albert the Great, you know, throwing, uh, you know, uh, know, he he heard that, you know, detailing, the, the, the stomach fibers and analyze them and dissecting them of insects, you know. And and, and, and and even going so far as to appreciate reality as it's discovered in even natural things, uh, to the extent that he would spend his time, this great doctor of the church, throwing different things to ostriches to see if they would eat them, you know. And he has these great notes, you know, uh, where he, he would say, you know, I, I thought they would... You know, I'd heard that ostriches would eat metal. But they didn't eat any metal that I threw them, you know. But they did eat bones and some other things. You know, good old St. Albert writing these things down. And so his, his great appreciation for Aristotle, he transmitted to Thomas. And, and, and so I think Aristotle, I, I think I might give pride of place. Oh, but now that I think about it, you know, Plato has his merits, you know. All right, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do
1: either one of you know if there's any philosophical work being done on the problem in modern physics, exemplified by that discussion between Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr, that God does not play truth, uh, that that the very small, the the application of the laws of nature at the at the micro level are not the same ones that govern, govern that at the macro level. Is there any philosophical work being done to bridge that
2: gap? I'll be the daring individual and take on that question. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, what, he, what he's talking about is, is very interesting. And what, he's, what he's implying is with the quantum revolution uh, in the 20th century, uh, certain laws that apply at the macro level to large objects traveling at relatively normal speeds apply. But the laws of Newtonian physics, et cetera, don't seem to apply to things that are extraordinarily small or large or traveling at high speeds, and and and, and this 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 might be a, a problem, you know, and 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 other questions like you know wave particle duality, you know, uh, you know how you know and these these kind of issues. Now there's there's you know the, the, un, under some conditions you know light appears to be a wave, and under other conditions it appears to be a particle, uh, and, and and thus does that violate the principle of non contradiction? You know, but but again, the principle of non-contradiction is something cannot be and not be at the same time under the same aspect, and thus under the aspect of studying it in this way, it seems to be a particle and and, and reveal a corpuscular kind of makeup, whereas under these conditions, it reveals itself to to behave more like a wave. You know, and there are and I'll try to get some names for you, okay. Of, of contemporary Thomas, who are trying to bridge that gap. In fact, in Rome, I had a, a philosophy class taught by a, Philippine, uh, a, a Filipino uh, and, and a Dominican, uh, who on on a philosophy of complexity, complex systems, and the, yeah, as if philosophy wasn't wasn't bad enough, you know, <laughs> you have to have a philosophy of complexity. And it, de- it dealt with exactly that topic, and I have a bibliography from that class that I would be happy to pass on to you. And and, and this will be you know it will give you some names of of contemporary uh, individuals who are both religious believers, philosophers, and who also are, are interested in, in applying to mystic categories and others to uh, modern discoveries in theory of relativity, etc. Okay, and I'll try to get that to you. So let me talk to you after this is all over.
0: That's why many speakers refuse to do Q and A because you never know what's going to be asked. Okay.
2: Kind of related to the gentleman's question he just um, asked. Um, It seems like you know even in mathematics you have different you know geometry models and stuff and the laws are the same within that model but between them they're different. Well, so you kind of go to okay well when I'm working in this standard these laws apply and vice versa. Um, in terms of relating that to like faith and stuff um, how do you explain to people that like um, Christ came, Christ is the truth because it looks almost like you know everyone's like into this real relativism and you know what's really truth, what's the standard, because you were talking too about setting standards when you're you know using these philosophical ideas Uh, uh, We're looking at, I'm being quick here, so basically truth is complex okay uh, it's it's not so cut and dry. Now some truths are so universal that they apply in every context. I, I just mentioned the principle of non-contradiction: that something cannot be and not be at the same time under the same aspect. That is going to be true, and that truth is necessarily implied if you're going to say anything intelligent about you know X form of geometry versus Y form of geometry. Okay, and so that principle has to apply even for any truths to be had within either of those. Uh, you know, uh, you know uh, studies within geometry, but you know every science has its own has its own method Every science has its own uh, approach and there is a Multiplicity that is compatible with truth Okay, this is the analogy I'll give and I might have given this before. It's like a soccer game Okay, there are certain rules Everybody must abide by Okay, but this gives the context for freedom Within this game, in a general sense, you can play like the Brazilians, okay? And you can have the Samba-style passing game. You, know, you can send your fullbacks up the right and left flank. You know, crossing balls into the middle, you emphasize a passing game. They're kind of short, so you don't emphasize other things. Or you could do it like the Germans. They, they, they can't do the whole Samba thing, you know? So, <laughs> so what do they do? What do they do? They score on set pieces. They use their superior strength and height in the box to score. Uh, on, on on set pieces and so thus truth is, is one but it doesn't mean that there are not other ways within the one to, to pursue a similar end you know there's different religious orders within the church uh, there you know uh, there's different cultural you know in different cultures there's different cultural expressions of Christianity and what's important is that the truth actually gives the possibility of a legitimate plurality now you know when you go outside of the bounds that there's certain things that just aren't allowed. you know you can't c- you carry the ball with your hands. and there's certain things that are objective and, 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 and unchanging. And yet there is a legitimate room for diversity, but it's only because there's rules that you can even play the game. That's what I would say. Uh, uh.
1: Okay. I wanted to save Sabatino another walk, so I'm going to, and I'll <laughs> make this short. Um, I'm going to take take us back to that last week uh, with the Greeks, and I'm thinking of a contribution the Greeks may, may have made that obviously helped the spread of Christianity, and that's the writing of the Septuagint. Um, how important is that to the, and instrumental is that to the spread of the gospel, um, or were there other written forms of the gospel that could have been made available for Paul and the other um, apostles to preach on? Well, that's
3: a very good question. The, the Septuagint is, is not strictly a contribution of, of the Greeks, but it's, it's sort of a, a sign of the Greek contribution. It's a symptom of the Greek contribution because what the Septuagint is, it, it's the product of, of the, the rabbis translating the Old Testament into Greek. What this is a sign of is, is the universality of Greek as the means of cultural exchange in the Hellenistic age, and certainly the fact that the the authors of the New Testament, the apostles and and Paul um, and and the evangelists wrote in Greek, and they were all Jews, right? It's a sign that even for Jews, right, around the time of Christ in in the Roman period. Greek was the lingua franca Greek was the universal means of cultural exchange And, and certainly that's a contribution of the Greeks right? But it's a contribution of the Greeks That wouldn't have been complete in a sense If it hadn't been for Roman statecraft Uniting the Mediterranean world So that anywhere in the Mediterranean world It could be assumed that a man who was literate Knew Greek right? Whether Jew or pagan or Christian or, or what have you so.
0: It was into that world that our Lord was born